Life can be tough. We're busy. Don't have time. I'm overwhelmed. We're binging. I don't have time. I'm overwhelmed. We're bruised. I, I needed me. I don't have time. I'm overwhelmed. I can't help it. I We're bothered. Yeah. What's next? We've got baggage. I can't I don't have time. We're bewildered. I can't forget. What now? What's next? What's next? The new normal. Memorial Day weekend. We are in a series, as you know, and uh, we're talking about the new normal. There was busy, there was bothered, and I'm baggage. I'm not sure why they gave me baggage, but I. <laughs> but this Memorial Day weekend, before it was called Memorial Day, back in the last century, two centuries ago, in the late 1860s, it was called something else. It was called Decoration Day because the Civil War general identified that they should decorate the graves of the fallen. And the end of May, last Monday in May, flowers would be in bloom across the country, so you cut flowers and put them on the grave. So it was decoration day. On a lighter note, this is the, like the first weekend of summer. This is where people get in their car, and, and you didn't do it. Or e- either that or you're from Boise or something, and you showed up here. But, the, but it's wonderful to see you all. But when you fly... One of the first signs you look for in the airport is this one. Baggage claim, where we find the items we brought for the journey. If you lived in Victorian days, it was serious. There were no roller boards. It was that. But we know that there are some things that are essential to the journey because it's it's just a long journey. There are lots of valleys lots of mountains, you want to take the stuff that's necessary. What you don't want to take is stuff that's unnecessary. That's what we call baggage because baggage that we're referring to in this weekend, in this message, isn't this stuff, you know. This is the essential stuff. This is the junk we don't want, right? The baggage we're talking about is the baggage that we carry in that special baggage claim area in the five inches between our ears. It's the emotional, spiritual baggage. Baggage, by definition, is this. It's the first thing on the back of your bulletin. And we'll leave the slide up so you can write it down. There are several words. Baggage is beliefs and feelings that influence how we think and behave. Beliefs and feelings that influence how we think and behave. I'm going to say it again. Beliefs and feelings that influence how we think and behave. And most of those beliefs and feelings come from experiences we had. Okay? So this memory bank, this spiritual, emotional memory bank between our ears, lots of memories. Memories fuel our lives. Memories are the repository of all relationships. That's why when somebody gets dementia or Alzheimer's, the memories go away. All the relationships go away. It's so frustrating, both to the person and to the others who are around them. But you can have memories that are good or bad or helpful or hurtful or accurate or inaccurate. (laughs) I have a a preacher friend who says, some of my best memories never happened. You know, but let's just assume that this is the good memory. This rollerboard is the, is the good memory. I've got uh, lots of memories in the rollerboard bag. 
And uh, i just show you two or three of them real quickly. This is one, this picture. This is a tea plantation 6,500 feet up in the Blue Mountains of South India. When I was a little boy, between four and seven, I went to a boarding school up in the tea plantations. And tea on the bush has a delicate fragrance. And when you step into the tea, you smell that. I hadn't been back there for 25 years. I left in 1949. And I stepped into the tea field, into the tea bushes. And those, the smell, because, because the olfactory response in memory is very strong, you smell something and it takes you back. And it was that kind of moment. So smells sometimes take you back to those memory places. Or for those of you who like music, Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds I hands have made. You know that song? It takes me back to 1959. I'm a 17-year-old high school senior, and this fellow named Billy Graham comes to the Cow Palace in San Francisco. That's a big arena. And I go there, and it's tens of thousands of people and a few hundred people in the choir, and they sing that song. And when I hear that song or sing that song, it takes me there. Or this, Helicopter. Six years ago this week, and I've talked to you about this before, Ruth and I were with friends up at Estes Park, 10.15 on Wednesday morning, and she collapses sitting beside me and suffers what the medical community calls sudden cardiac death. It's when the ventricle, the ventricle part of your heart starts fibrillating, quivering like a bowl of jelly, shorts out, and you lose blood to your brain. Older person, your brain cells start dying in two to three minutes, Resuscitation rate in the field, I didn't know that at the time, and I'm glad, that year nationally was 17%. Of the people who get to the hospital, only 1 in 20 walk out. Of those people, very few, an infinitesimal number, suffer no brain damage, and that was Ruth. They said, the cardiologist said, we don't know when she'll wake up, because, well, what happened was she went down, the EMT showed up within minutes, it was amazing, the police, the fire people, the EMTs, they cut her clothes off. All I could see were her bare feet as they shocked her. And on the third shock, I heard one of the greatest sentences I've ever heard, which is, we have a pulse. They took her to the hospital. They paralyzed her, put her in a coma, and then they put her on that chopper. Ruth doesn't like to fly. And I had to tell her afterwards, you flew in a helicopter. She said, yeah, but I was drugged. And so I love that helicopter. Because they came to, and 40 hours later, they said she may never wake up. And 48, 40 hours later, you were praying, others around the world were praying. She woke up, and she was here last night in service. But I love that chopper. I drive by, I say, Ruth, when we were driving down I-20, I said, that's, that's your helicopter. She doesn't remember anything for 11 days. But I say, just trust me, that's your helicopter. And the pilot and the nurse who flew it were from this congregation. So those are some good memories. Over here in, in the garbage bag, I got bad baggage. I got bad memories. Like as a high schooler going to sleep each night in a little bungalow in, in East Oakland, California. My dad was a pastor. My parents were good people, but they had this problem and they would fight verbally. They wouldn't physically fight, but they would fight verbally. And I can remember going to sleep night after night, listening to them argue, somebody getting the last word. And then I did this stupid thing. I agreed to be a runner. I didn't know I agreed to this, but dad would say, tell your mother this. And mom would say, why don't you tell them? And I had sort of the spirit of dumbness on me or something. I don't know. And I did that. That's not good baggage. I grew up in a very strict church religiously. There's nothing wrong with that. But a number of times I wasn't explained the why. 
behind the guidance or the regulation. And not knowing the why doesn't help you. That's sort of bad baggage. And then there's this thing about I want to be liked. I don't walk out here on a weekend and say, you know, I think I just like to bomb. I just like this thing to, no. Anybody here like to be liked? You know, I like to be liked. But the problem with liking to be liked is that sometimes for me, I didn't have the courage to tell the truth in a given situation. And that's not good baggage. I think the memories and the baggage from childhood years are a challenge. Because when you're small, running around in a world of kneecaps, everything else is big. Some of us are 63 years old and we can remember a sentence said to us when we were five because it shaped how we saw our world and how we saw ourselves. And so we're still dealing with stuff like that. But you need, we need to deal with it like in our 20s and 30s because otherwise we're still dealing with it in our 70s and 80s. And sometimes even when the memory goes, the cognition goes, but the intuition still retains that. So you say, well, this is just an encouraging message this morning. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, no, the point is it's not cool to haul garbage around, okay? Baggage, garbage, whatever you want to call it. What if what was in your brain is physically something you had to carry around like this? And you're going to the doctor's office and you're sitting there and the person says, so like, what is that? You say, that's uh, my baggage stuff, garbage. The person says, kind of stinks. And you say, you have no idea. You know, I just, or you go to the baseball game and you're sitting in the stands with this on a hot summer day. Or you go to the, you go to fly someplace and they say, would you like to check that? And you say, I'd love to check that, but I can't seem to check that. So let's not do that. The writer of Hebrews comes along and gives us a way through. This is how it reads in Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, imagine an Olympic stadium, you're running the marathon and you're running in. Hebrews is about the race. He's writing, the writer's writing to a church that is weary on the journey, weary in the fight, and he's encouraging them. Great cloud of witnesses cheering you on. Let us throw off everything that hinders... And the sin that so easily entangles. Those two things aren't necessarily the same. Not everything that hinders is sin. Some things are, but there's stuff that goes on. Anyway, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So, how do we pick up baggage? I would suggest there are at least three ways we pick up baggage. It's things that happen to us, things we've done to ourselves and things we have done to others. We're going to leave that up on the screen just for a moment. Why don't we say that out loud together? Just say it with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Things that have happened to us, things we have done to ourselves, and things we have done to others. I would subsume those three things under the two categories of the Hebrew writer. Things that hinder us, and things, the sin that easily entangles. So you say, well, like, do you have any thoughts about how you throw that off? Yeah, they're on the back of your bulletin. Here we go. Number two, recognize truth and speak it to yourself. Recognize truth. What's true about that situation? What's true about that piece of baggage? Things happen. I would submit to you, name it. Don't try to not look at it. Don't try to obfuscate or just make it some 
ethereal thing. Name what it is. I mean, people have suffered huge pain, huge loss in war, in homes, in schools, in situations. And sometimes it's that somebody did something to us. Unfortunately, sometimes it's people in places of power, or what I would say, people who sit in the catbird seat. Whether it's people in government or in business or in family or in ministry things, church, religious institutions. Jesus really goes after two kinds of people who abuse power. Those who, who don't help kids. Who, he says this thing like a person who hurts a child or leads them down the wrong track better than a millstone be put around his neck and dropped into the deep. And I'm saying, really? This isn't baby Jesus meek and mild. He's coming after somebody. And then the religious leaders, because if we have a spiritual bent, if we're open to our spiritual lives, and he's talking into a culture that is theocratic, that is God's at the center of it, and he comes after the religious leaders in Matthew 23. This is what he says. And Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. Sometimes people in leadership, I think it's because they want control. Because if I give you stuff that I can measure, then I can control you. But whatever the reasons, that's what happens. But when I look back, for example, at my parents fighting, verbally fighting with each other, I don't think they were seeing, saying, I think we just like to give Dick a burden. I don't think that was anywhere in their purview. So it wasn't intentional. I just happened to be in the space. I just happened to overhear. It's like secondhand smoke. I wasn't really puffing away three packs a day, but I was inhaling somebody else's stuff. And so they didn't put a burden on me. I think I absorbed it, okay? Ruth said last night on the way home, she said, I don't think you've ever talked about that thing about your parents until tonight, never in 50 years. And I didn't. So I thought I'd talk about it again this morning, just to say that, because some of us get that. We, we know, and some of us have been on the other side, on the parent side of that, right? What I found out is that my parents' reality didn't need to be mine. I recognize this truth. I don't have to be painted with that brush. That's a truth I recognized. And I, and I kept speaking it to myself so much so that sort of a life theme of my teaching and preaching comes out of that. I have pastor friends whose life theme is prayer. They can start in the map section of their Bibles and end up on prayer. They could start in the genealogies of the Old Testament and end up on prayer. I can start about anywhere and end up on relationship, in part because I said, whatever that relationship dysfunctionally is, I don't want that. So how do I do stuff so I don't have that? And my whole life has been shaped by that. Sometimes others can help you recognize truth. Friends, older mentors, professional counselors, they can sit with you and help you work through your stuff, if you will. And um, these are, I, I consider those people the great cloud of witnesses. These are the people who cheer us on. There was a film that came out some years ago called The Help. You remember that film where it's the, it's the South in the 60s and you have the aristocrats, the white folks, and then you have the black help or the maids and the butlers and the nannies and so forth. 
And there's this wonderful scene where the white mother has been just disparaging this little girl, saying, you know, you're not, your curls aren't right, you're not speaking correctly, you're not eating with the right utensil, always down on her. And there's this one scene where the black nanny pulls the little girl in close and says, honey, remember this, you is kind, you is smart, you is important. You is kind, you is smart, you is important. How many of us, if we dreamed of having somebody in our life that pulled us in close and said, you is smart, you is kind, you is important. A couple of months ago, I had the privilege of speaking with a, with a national leader, a black woman who um, was brought up in Birmingham, Alabama. And she talked about community. She wrote a memoir, and in the in the book, she talked about growing up in Birmingham in the civil rights days, in the 60s, when in 1963, Ruth and I got married in the summer of 63, and that summer, Birmingham blew up. They called it Bombingham because all this stuff was going on. Martin Luther King was in jail and all that stuff. And uh, this is what she said, whatever feelings of insecurity and inadequacy black adults felt in the appalling and depressing circumstances, they did not transfer it to us. For the children of our little enclave, the message was crystal clear. We love you and we'll give you everything we can to help you succeed. But there are no excuses and there is no place for victims. There are no excuses and there is no place for victims. Now, some of us have been real victims. I mean, we were and have been victims. The key to that is, well... Okay, that happens to lots of people. Question is, are you going to stay there? If you take it as baggage, you stay there. And when you do that, you have a Velcro personality. This is a bag full of Velcro victims. Okay? Stuff just sticks to you. If you're easily offended, somebody says a little phrase, bang, it sticks to you. You can do that, and this bag will grow and grow and stink and stink, and you'll carry it your whole life. Or, this is the Teflon bag, where stuff just slides off. I call this bag the Teflon Titan bag. I just made that up. I love that. (laughs) So you can be a Velcro victim or a Teflon Titan, but the point is, God, by his Holy Spirit, can help with the Teflon part. Because he said, I was persecuted. I took your junk. I, t- I, I love that old gospel song that says, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. And he, he did that so I didn't have to be a Velcro victim. That's how that works. Um, so recognize the truth and speak it to yourself. Thirdly, rescind orders that trap you. Some of us have gone through stuff and we say, I will never go there again. I'll never do that again. I'm never speaking to her again. Well, sometimes that's valid. Sometimes you need to do that. But too often, again, it traps us. Sometimes we feel that way about God. God didn't show up the way I wanted or at the right time. Or I don't know where he went. Was he on vacation? Or that person failed me. If you're looking for people that don't fail you or let you down... You're on the wrong planet, okay? (laughs) You say, life isn't fair. Well, tell me something new. Have a missionary friend, she grew up in West Africa, who said, my parents taught me, if you're looking for fair, there's only one person who's fair. 
How do we get past that? Number four, reflect on the good but not the bad. Reflect on the good but not the bad. And you do that by starting with the big picture. You have to get away from this thing that traps me. You've got to get some distance. You have, and when you read scripture, it takes you places to 30,000 feet so you can say, you know that thing that happened? It's just some, some of us can look back and said, we got so upset about that thing and now three years out, it's nothing. It's a, why in the world did we do that? Well, you had a grouchy day or whatever it was. But, but when, you, when you read Paul in Philippians, it says this, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Here's that race motif again. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Some of us say, I don't want to remember the bad moments. I don't want to remember the bad times, but I just can't seem to forget them. <clears throat> I'd like to pray for you to have Holy Spirit amnesia, okay? You say, is there a verse for that? I don't think so. I think I just made that up. But the point is, we need for the things that hinder us, that hold us back, to be able to go away. Sometimes the bad things, studies show that bad things stick with us more readily than good things. It's like a five-to-one ratio. You need five good things to counteract whatever the bad thing is. I love this scripture, Psalm 19, 14. Let the words of my mouth, or may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Had an old guy come when I was a young president of a college and he spoke in chapel. He said, you know, I'm so tired of pulling weeds out of my life, the bad stuff. He said, I'd so, he said some years ago, I decided to, to stop pulling weeds and just start planting flowers. Just plant flowers, forget the weeds, and let the flowers push them out. I mean, if you have that many flowers, it could almost be like decoration day. Last night, our grandson Noah, who's 13, was sitting back there, and we had dinner afterwards. I said, Noah, do you remember anything Grandpa said or... or like, you know, it's always a good test to ask a 13-year-old that. I said, what about the helicopter that Grandma flew in? Do you remember that? And he said, no. I said, well, because kids remember visual things, you know, all of us. I said, I said you don't? He said, no, I, I was watching uh, basketball on my phone in that part. I, <laughs> some of you who are watching basketball on your phone, just put it down. Just don't. I said, do you remember anything? He said, yeah, I remember that part about you, you need to plant flowers. I said, good on you. I'm buying you dinner. You know, so that's how. It... Finally, point five, what's the, what's the answer to all of this? It's receive and offer forgiveness. Receive and offer forgiveness. Particularly that's true about the sin stuff in this bag. The stuff that I did to myself or did to you. That's called sin, the violations of God and you and myself, right? You say, boy, I don't like that sin word. I love that sin word. First of all, all of us have it. It says all have sinned and come short of the glory. So we're all in this together. Nobody's looking at Not like that dude. You're exactly like that dude, okay? Call it what it is. Sin, a missing of the mark, an overstepping, an omission or a... Co 
call it sin. It's the only thing God forgives. Go there. Do that. I um, have a friend. I've told you about him before. His name's Roberto. He was the Supreme Court justice in a Latin American country. Came to Washington, D.C. We were in a breakfast group together. He was a Ph.D. in comparative law from Cambridge University. He could, he could talk about Chinese poetry and opera equally well. I used to like to sit by, by him, see if it would rub off. None of it ever rubbed off. But he had never read the Gospels till he was 68. And his approach to Scripture, both as a lawyer, as a Supreme Court justice, and as a newbie, without teaching, nobody telling him this is what that means, was really different. And so I had five pastors, seminary trained guys with me one day. We walked into this house and Roberto was there. I said, Roberto, what have you been thinking about? He had this deep Spanish accented voice. He said, you know, Dick, I have been thinking about sin. I can't remember the last time I sat around for 30 minutes and thought about sin. But he's a jurist, right? He's a, he's a, a Supreme Court justice. I said, well, what are you thinking about sin? He says, well, what makes sin, sin? Why is this sin for me but not sin for you? And why is this sin and that's?" He said, and it was very confusing, but then I remembered the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I've come to this conclusion that whatever gets in the way of that, that is sin. These five guys with me, who had spent $50,000 to go to seminary saying, oh, dude, I never heard that. The whole time, I never heard that, you know. There's something about naming it and saying, Lord, take care of this. When you read the book, it's full of that, forgiveness. Jesus shows up on the evening of the resurrection. He's newly out of the grave, shows up, scares the bejeebers out of the disciples in, the, in Jerusalem, and he says, peace be to you, John 20, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. So this is the way you go into the world. Breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Then says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I'm saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Back earlier when a guy's let down through the roof, he's a paralyzed guy. Remember that story, let down through the roof. And Jesus looks at him and he doesn't heal his body immediately. He says, your sins are forgiven. And the religious guys are thinking, only God can do that. And I think Jesus probably said, you're getting close, that's good. But, the, but that's what I'm thinking when I read this text. When I read this text, I'm saying, only God can forgive sins. What's this about? But what if, what if forgiveness is the language of the kingdom? What if forgiveness is that thing that connects people so at work somebody offends you, somebody cuts across your territory, on purpose they do it, and what if you were to go to them and say, John, you and I both know you did that on purpose, but I just, I want to tell you this, I forgive you, it's okay. Well, if he doesn't have a heart attack, he might say, well, like we're, where did you learn that? And you can say, well, I learned it from my dad. Would you like to meet him? Because I believe that forgiveness of temporal things, things in time and space, is a window on the forgiveness that God has. And if there's a human being who can forgive me for something I did wrong without me even asking, whatever, maybe there's a God out there somewhere that I can't see that can forgive me forever for everything. I think that's where it goes. So our kids are small. We're sitting at a table. 
And uh, somebody wrote a book years ago entitled Where Two or Three Are Gathered Together, Someone Spills His Milk. It's a family book. <laughs> We're sitting there, and bam, milk goes on the floor. I turn to Susanna, who's now the mother of three, eldest is graduating high school this week, and she's four years old, and I said, Susanna, why did you do that? You know, it's a parental question. Like at 602, I think I'll knock this sucker on the floor and get my dad mad. You know, I just, and I just said, why did you do this? And she said, I didn't do it, Daddy. I said, Susanna, I know I wasn't facing you exactly, but I caught you. You did. And she said, I didn't do it, Daddy. And I didn't want to say she was a liar. So I said, you know, you can't tell stories about that. And about that time, Jenny, her older sister by two years, said, I did it, Daddy. I hate those moments. (laughs) Because now I get to say to a four-year-old, will you forgive me? You know, I just hate that. But there are some things heavier than spilled milk. My mother is buried in Fairhaven Cemetery in Santa Ana, California, south of L.A. Less than 100 feet away is the body of the only the, the earliest female licensed watchmaker in Holland. And her name was Corrie ten Boom. Some of you know the story of Corrie ten Boom. During the Second World War, she and her sister and father hid Jews in Amsterdam all of the ten booms went to the camps. Her father and sister died there. Corey survived Ravensbrook. She said things like, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Or you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. But she told a story about two years after the war being in Munich, Germany. She had gone there to speak to them about God's forgiveness in this broken land. I was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. That's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past that man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, tried not to look at him, but I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian, and I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, a person whose sins had been forgiven again and again, but Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? I had to do it. I knew that because the message of Jesus is preconditional. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will the Father in heaven forgive yours. My experience during the war keeping a home for people brutalized by the Nazis in Holland, I found that those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives. 
Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. I still stood there, coldness in my heart. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. Healing warmth seemed to flood my entire body. Tears sprang to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. So, baggage, garbage, stinking, things that hinder, and the sins that so easily beset. What does Jesus say about that? What Jesus says is this, Matthew 11, come unto me, all you are who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when I come to Jesus and I get into his yoke, he says, um, I'll take you and this, but this? We can't be having this. What I'm going to do with this is throw it into the sea of my forgetfulness. And when you bring it up again, I'll say, say what? I have no idea what you're talking about because this has to go. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this moment, for your grace, for coming after us, not to hurt us, but to say, you are kind, you are smart, you are important, you are mine. And if you would, just as you sit there, I'd just like you to open your eyes and look at me for a moment. And I'd, I'd like to ask a favor of you, if you will. If, if you will, and if you want, you don't have to. Please don't feel like you have to. But if you could just put your hands like this. And let's just, let's just say these are my, this is the baggage. Whatever kind of baggage, this is it. And with our hands like this, now I'd like to pray out loud in short phrases. And if you would join me, please do out loud, follow me. And let's, let's deal with this. At least start the process. Okay, so I'm going to say a phrase and you out loud say it with me. Dear Lord, here I am. You know me. You know my stuff. This day, this Memorial Day weekend, I give it to you. I am so tired of carrying it. I can't carry it. Thank you for ridding me of it. And I believe you for an answer. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.